Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Magdalena Sorger. She's a research adjunct, part of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences and part of North Carolina State University. We're going to talk about ants. So, uh, Magdalena, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me about your uh, research and your work. I'm uh, currently a research adjunct with the museum and the university, but I'm currently stationed in Vienna in Austria. So I'm kind of doing a long distance thing or kind of figuring out what I'm doing. So I guess I want to talk about what I've been doing at the museum and how I'm finding my way into what I'm doing now. So at the museum, I used to work with teachers to bring ants and citizen science into classrooms. So I guess that's already bunch of things I don't know maybe I should talk about citizen science or do you have you heard well, yeah. term before? yeah what is citizen science and then we'll get more into the specifics of the ants sounds good so citizen science is where um, the, the general public is involved in the scientific process at one or more stages so that means that usually science is just done by the researcher and it happens or people perceive it to be happening in this bubble but in this case it actually is something where everybody gets involved in parts of the process. So in this case, for instance, you might be collecting ants at your home, for instance. I can't like walk into everybody's homes, so I ask people to collect ants at homes, and then I identify them, and I use them to answer a general research question. So in my case, I was working with schools, and so in schools, for instance, you have, of course, science education, and they're usually science is taught as this abstract thing that people do in labs. And so my goal there was to work with students and teachers to, I don't know, I guess, take the magic out of science and involve them in the process and show them that it is something that they can also do. And that science is, I guess, something that you use in everyday life. Well, I wouldn't say you take out the magic, you take out the mystery, but add, yes. you know, make it magical. You know, I'm sure right. you weren't a, a boring teacher. <laughs> But you, you probably put magic into it, but took away the mystery and the misapprehension and the right. confusion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's kind of what I mean. And so to basically show them that it is something that they can also do, they can grow up to be scientists, and it's not something that only people in white lab coats and glasses in, with their beakers do. It's actually really just a process of understanding the world. That's cool. So why ants? Like what's been your, have you been fascinated with them all your life or like what what got you into ants? Yeah. So I actually didn't enter the field of ants in a conventional way, although I'm not even sure there is a conventional way to enter the field of ants because they're so specific. No, but I actually entered in a completely different way. So I actually um, got a business degree first. And so Vienna, Austria, where I'm right now, that's where I'm from. And so this is where I went to business school. And my goal was actually to earn lots of money and, you know, have a nice car, have a nice apartment and all those things. And I didn't really think about 
why. So the goal was mostly money. And um, during my last few semesters, I went on an exchange semester to the U.S. I was in Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And the Austrian system, you need to know, um, if you study business, you do this at business school and there are no other classes you can take. So it's pretty streamlined in that way. And so if you have other interests, you have to really try super hard to take other classes and do that. So it's not really supported very much by the system. And so when I went to the U.S. on my exchange semester, I had the opportunity to take other classes. And so I took that opportunity. And so I took a biology class and for the first time in my life learned about evolution and life around me and insects and small things and the things they do. And long story short, over the next months that I did my my exchange semester, I went traveling. I like spent a lot of time looking at those things. And somewhere along the way, I just, I don't know, something clicked, something happened. And I just decided that I'm in love with ants. Very cool. Kind of like a strange, a strange thing that I didn't really know what to do with. And I came back to Austria and, you know, still in my business degree, uh, in my studies. And I just, you know, read a bunch of books and I realized I wanted more. And so I got in touch with people at the museum over here and found slowly, you know, like found my mentor who started to teach me. And over the course of the next two years, um, what was it, a year and a half or something, I got a PhD position in the U.S. to study ants full-time. What are you studying about them? Like, What interests you about them? And what are some of the common misperceptions people have about ants? Yeah, so um, my interest in ants is from an evolutionary perspective. So I'm interested in speciation, like what makes species and finding new species. Basically, what's interesting about insects, or maybe what a lot of people don't know is that there is a lot we don't know. There's a lot of insect species. There's a lot, like there's a million insect species out there, like over a million. And just to put that number into perspective, there's about 5,000 mammal species. So (laughs) So how many estimated ant species are there? I was just saying insects, there's about a million. There's 5,000 mammals and there's 15, about 15,000 ant species, which means- Wow, that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, So there's three times as many ants as there's all the mammals that you know of, just ants. And I mean, I guess, you know, let me ask you, like, how many ant species are you aware of? A couple, I don't know, probably like army ants, fire ants, leafcutter ants, and maybe a few others, but just a few, the names of, that's it. Right. And there, I guess you already know a little bit more than a lot of other people, because a lot of people will say, well, there's red ants and black ants, right? So that's in depending where you when you are and the red ants or fire ants, you know, and so on and so forth. But there's actually a lot of diversity that people are not aware of. And so what are, I, what are some of the differences in the species of ants that you've studied? Like what appears to differentiate them? So for instance, I was studying so for some of my research, I've been studying trap jaw ants. You know, there's a lot of very, very cool ants, but this is, you know, one that's really up there. So they have these big jaws that they extend sideways. So when they walk around, when they walk around, they look like little hammerhead sharks. That's kind of what their jaws look like. Oh, okay. Like pincers that move horizontally. Exactly. And so they have these hairs in the middle between those jaws. And when something that they're preying on touches those hairs, the jaws snap shut. And this happens at a really, really high speed. This is like almost the fastest movement in animal kingdom. 
So it's like and, your Venus flytrap in a way. Yes, just much, much faster. And it's actually when really? they snap the jaws, it's an audible click that you can actually hear, which is cool. How fast, how fast is fast? It's about three times as fast as a cheetah can run and two times as fast okay. as, have, maybe you've heard of like the mantis shrimp. I've heard of it, but I don't know if it, yeah. or does it just jump and attack prey or like, what does it mean? The mantis, mantis shrimp do? just uses a fast movement to kind of punches, but this is among the fastest animal movements out there. And the trap giants are even faster than that. So that's kind of. Has, has anyone um, made a video, you know, like a, a motion capture video? Where they could slow it down and you can observe the ant yeah. closing its that's, jaws. And do you observe recoil and stuff? So that's actually how you study even like how fast they're closing the jaws. You get a camera that has like really high frames per second or per millisecond in that case. And then you record the jaw snapping. And that's how you even quantify how fast the jaws are. What have you noticed on the videos? Is there any recoil once the jaws close? Or yeah. So, see okay. the hair, so hair is bending? And what do you notice about it? Okay, so this is just a general idea of what trap giants do. So they can catch prey, they're really fast, and they can do that. But that second thing that these ants can do with these jaws is that when they do that movement, that super fast movement against a flat surface, like the ground or your fingernail, it propels them backwards and they jump. But they've actually co-opted that behavior that, that most likely was just for catching prey to use the jumping for a specific reason to get away from a threat, for instance. Well, that's really interesting. How far do they go move backwards when they jump? So there's two types of jumps, like one that goes straight backwards. I mean, it depends like 30 centimeters or something, but then they can also go upwards. And so, yeah, it's about 30 centimeters, I would say, like a foot. But what other, um, so you've observed them jump back from attacks from predators and stuff? Yes. And that's actually well-researched that they do that. And so the research that they do jump, like I haven't, I wasn't involved in that. So I just know, but I've actually, part of my research was something that I observed on a trip when I was in Borneo, where those ants live. They live worldwide in the tropics, partly. In the U.S., you get them in Florida, all the way to South Georgia. So they actually are in the U.S. And so when I went to Borneo, I knew that they were jumping and I was very excited to see them, but I was actually studying them for what I was mentioning earlier. I was interested in differences between species. And so when you have two trap jaw ants, they mostly look the same, you know, so they're same color. When you look at a close-up picture, like have the same general size of everything. So they just look the same, but, and that's the thing, Usually we can, sometimes we can only tell whether something's a different species by looking at their genes, at their genetics, and to see if they're actually different or not. But then other times there are actually subtle differences between two species. And so you asked me earlier, how do you tell them apart? Like, is there anything? And so when I'm looking for those species, you know, I, I know these ants, I collect them, I kind of know how they move, how they act. And um, I did, you know, this was actually a species in Florida that I was working on. I did notice that they acted differently. They just, they were a little bit more aggressive, a little different. I did some additional research where I looked at whether their color was the same. And this, I could not tell when I just looked at them through my eyes, but I had to do statistics and it looked that they were different. And once you know that, once you see that the data shows you, oh, they're different and you look a little bit closer and you're like, oh, indeed, 
they're a little bit redder, but I wouldn't have noticed before, like only now. And so the final reason of how you would find out whether something's a different species, you would look at their genetics, of course. Well, I thought it was uh, reproductive isolation that made species. Or like, what? What is? Yes. You know, you study this, so yeah. perhaps you have a different definition of species versus other people. What's What's your definition and why? Well, reproductive isolation is, of course, the mechanism through which it happens, but that leads to a change in their genes over time, and then that. Well, I mean, there are you know, so are there very different types of ants that can mate, so they're not reproductively isolated, but morphologically they may be so different as to everyone would think they're a different species you know if they've been isolated two populations may still breed let's say but again they may be very different physically so if they're isolated they're morphologically similar and they can still breed you mean no maybe there's two populations i've heard of this with uh, i think sticklebacks or some other kind of fish mm-hmm. but for what if there was you know two populations of ants that have been separated for a couple million years yeah so because of their local environment, they've changed and adapted quite a bit, but perhaps they could still reproduce if introduced to one another again. Do you observe yeah. that? Well, I mean, that is possible, but of course, you know, like it depends on what level the genetic changes are happening. Usually in ants, it will be um, recognition. So it will happen like do two species still recognize each other? So if they're isolated and these particular things have not changed, and then they come back together, then theoretically it is possible that they rejoin and become a single species again. So what are you figuring out? Are you, are you understanding, you believe, how speciation occurs, or what's your focus there? It's from the species that we currently know of, like are, are there new species from the understanding that we have right now? So if something is, for instance... Okay, so let me give you an example. So I was doing research in Florida. So in Florida, there are these ridges, like these sand ridges that are essentially like islands, like little sand islands. I don't know if you're familiar with with these sand ridges. What do you mean? Like are they on shore and they're just... No, they're inland sand ridges. There used to be, they're in effect of like when sea levels were different. But at this point, they're basically just sand islands that are inland in Florida. And so on these sand islands, they're about like 100 meter high. There's a, a fauna and a flora that doesn't occur off the ridges. So species that live on the ridge don't live, live off the ridge. And if you have several of these ridges, you have this island effect. So things only occur on the ridges. And so we have an ant species, a trap jaw ant species, that only occurs on two of these ridges. So these ridges are actually not super far apart. They're about 10 miles apart. But in the, the ant question, world, that's like worlds away, and I guess they're yeah, it is become very different, right? But ants can fly. All ants, or just certain uh, the queen, or what, what do you mean? The queen, yeah, yeah. So the reproductive cast in ants, so the males and queens can fly. That's how they reproduce. Oh. So you see, like mating flights or something like that. So let's so talk we, about that for a quick second. How sure? I would think that the winds would very quickly knock them all over the place. So I would think they would only fly when there's no wind. And they only would fly a very small amount of height, not very high, because, again, the winds would buffet them all over the place. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, they would. Mating flights in ants are kind of a tricky subject that is not very well researched. But for instance, we know that like fire ants, for instance, they mate like in the air super high up. 
how exactly they do that and how they're able to do that. I can't tell you that, but I'm assuming they would do it on a day that is not particularly windy because for exactly what you just said, like it just wouldn't be possible. That's crazy. Have you observed ants flying or have people again made, made video of flights of ants, like do a few fly or two thousands of them fly like a flock of birds. So oftentimes you will see like a mating flight. They're just like all over. So people just complain about, they will like land on you and stuff. It's usually a very restricted area where they do it, why they do it in exactly that area that is, but yeah, but that's what a mating flight. So so you've never experienced a mating flight in ants. You've never seen that. No, and I don't think most people have either. That's like, cool. I don't know, it seems like a very unusual yeah. type thing. Termites you know? do the same thing. So sometimes people, you know, just basically when you notice there's a lot of winged insects that all look the same, pretty much, then it's almost certainly a mating flight of ants or termites, depending huh. on where you are. Very interesting. Yeah, you might also see that, for instance, when you're like walking outside in the grass, for instance, like all over the grass, there's just, you see the same thing everywhere. So very often that will be a mating flight of ants. So it doesn't necessarily, you don't have to like mate in the air, but they're flying to a location, they're meeting there, and that's where they're mating. What is the typical life cycle of an ant? You know, the, yes. the, does a queen fly off and, and mate and start a new colony, or does she return to an existing one? And like, how does a colony start and develop and then what happens to it like how long do they last you know some of the colony dynamics is what I'm yes, asking. there is a little bit of variation but in the most common way or what happens like most commonly is yeah that a queen that young queens a mature colony starts producing eggs that will develop into virgin queens into young queens and males so that is when the colony is mature so then those queens those virgin queens and the males will then fly off they will mate with queens and males from another colony, then the males will die because males don't play an active part in an ant colony. The queens, and this is again, this is like millions of, like most of them will die because they will be eaten or whatever. But the ones that can, that can, they will walk off and like they will shed their wings and then they will found a new colony. And so they usually will start with, you know, just laying a few eggs. They will actually eat those eggs so they can survive. But then they will start with one worker, two workers, and then slowly will start building their colony. So if you have an existing colony, is it abandoned when the new queens come about? The new, no. uh, Or what happens to the existing colony when the queen flies it, away and it goes to Next make? year, they will do the same thing. No, but who goes back to that original colony? So they do abandon it then after a year? Well, so there's one, and usually in ants, there's one queen per colony. So this is the only, the only individual that lays eggs. So she is what pretty much, she's the heart of the colony. Without the queen, the colony cannot exist. When she lays eggs and everything. Yes. Um, so she'll fly around, she'll mate, she'll land, and she'll start up a new colony, yes. lay eggs. The colony will grow. But at what point does she produce you know, new virgin queens that, that fly off and create their own. When the colony reaches a specific size. So that's different for every ant species because there's colonies that can be mature colonies at 20 workers. And there's colonies that are mature colonies at a million workers. So once the queen produces these new queens, they fly away, they make their own Mm -hmm. colonies, but Mm -hmm. the existing colony, the queen then stays there and just continues to lay and keeps the colony going. Exactly. And how long do these colonies last? So you're asking me how long ants live, essentially. I guess their whole identity and their whole life is tied up with the colony. So 
Yeah. You know, how long does, you know, I know it depends on species, but how long yeah. have some colonies been observed to live and and when the colony dies, what happens? Like what's the order of progression? So ants in captivity have been known to live up to 30 years, which is pretty long. It's the longest wow. living insect. Yeah. Um, but that's in captivity, of course, you know, like if you're in the wild, it's this is harder to test and to observe, but they live a long time when it comes to insects. Then you ask for the order of progression. So when the queen dies, generally the colony will die because the brain of the colony is gone. And with ants, it's kind of interesting because you can't really consider ants as individual animals. So ants really only make sense in a colony. So they're kind of like a superorganism. So what would be more reasonable is to think of an ant colony like we think of the human body. So there's many cells that work together to, you know, and organs to make everything work, but you need all of it. If something doesn't work, then the whole thing will just, you know, fall apart. And so that's a more appropriate way to think of an ant colony. And so you could oh. then consider the queen to be the brain or the heart or something like that. So without her, nothing will work. Well, what if you, uh, you know, have an individual ant in a little enclosure in a lab and you feed it and you give it you to run around and water and stuff? Yeah, worker. Like what happens? Well, what happens to the it worker? Will it just die? I mean, if you feed her and you keep her, she will probably, you know, survive, but she doesn't have a purpose. Like she doesn't. What, have... Has anyone done that? Have they observed what they do if they're alone? Yeah. I mean, they'll just do their thing. People and like kids, you know, like keep ants all the time. Usually, very often those are not queen right colonies. So they just like have a bunch of ants. I remember, I know this because I was gifted, you know, a little ant farm once as a joke. And then, you know, I ordered like the ants that came with the ant farm and it was just like a bunch of workers. And so, yeah, so I put them in there and they did their thing and, and then they, you know, slowly died because it's just, I mean, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean, so they do act individually and they do, they, you know, they can't live individually. It's just not their preferred state of existence. Again, then it's kind of a question, like, what's the goal? Because in, for most species, the goal of existence is reproduction. You want to, you know, continue your genes, right? An individual ant worker cannot reproduce. Well, right. But I mean, like in humans, if there's an individual guy that just never got married and stuff and he lives out his life, I mean, he can still live out his life. So it sounds like, you know, the female workers, same thing. They're like, you know, they unattached women. They just, they can live out their lives, but it's not nearly as purposeful or meaningful. And there's no cycling because they're not as part of the colony. Right. But again, in a species context, you know, in an evolutionary context, it makes no sense. Also, the individual worker wouldn't come into existence without a colony. So you took that worker out of the colony. You know what I mean? Has anyone tried to uh, separate workers for like a day or two and then reintroduce them and see what happens? Yeah, I'm sure people have done that, but I can, you know, I can tell you what probably would happen because when a worker is in a colony, the queen communicates through smell, like through a general, like there's a scent that tells everybody essentially what to do and what like their job is. So as long as that scent exists, they know what to do and they will do it. If you separate workers from the colony, they will still keep doing their thing. But as that dissipates, they just won't know what to do anymore. So if you then reintroduce them, then this will come back. What can, of course, happen is, and they've done, there's a funny experiment that's been done. When an ant dies, it obviously loses the smell of the colony because there's like no more, it doesn't function anymore. 
So what, when an ant dies in a colony, workers will come and will take that ant and throw it on the trash. Like they have like a little trash pile. So on that trash pile, again, the smell of decay will essentially start happening to that ant. So researchers have taken that, have produced that smell of decay and have put it onto a living ant. And you can guess what the workers did. They picked up that living ant and like threw it in, on the trash pile. And this would keep happening until that smell, you know, like dissipates. So ants are very, very smell oriented. Well, has anyone recreated any of the, um, the pheromones or scents from the queen? Because then if you have a colony of workers and you introduce that scent periodically, maybe the workers would live longer or do different things than they do without the queen. Yeah, you mean producing the scent of the pheromones that the queen emits and to yeah. see whether you can influence what they do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can do that. In a colony, does the queen like face-to-face communicate with the workers? Or for the most part, they never see her? They just smell what her directions are? Like, What's the dynamic in a, in a hive or in a, sure. a nest? So basically, there's different workers that have different tasks. And so some workers have the task to take care of the brood, to feed the queen. Others are foragers. Others are defend the colony and so on. So I guess if you see the queen and if you interact with the queen, kind of depends what your caste is or like what your task is within the colony. So do you think the lower castes, what are the different castes in in an ant colony? There's workers, what else is there? They're all kind of, I mean, you can, usually they're workers that have different tasks, but generally we separate between workers and soldiers. They're also like the soldier cast, but again, they have different jobs. So sometimes you can't tell by what they look like, what their job is. And when are males produced? Same time as queens. So that would be, again, when it's time for reproduction, which is, it's usually in the spring, like with a lot of species. Then, the queen will produce new queens. She, so she produces workers all year and then just once a year produces males and new yes, queens? Correct. So she produces the males and new queens. They all fly away and they mate in the air. And then do the males die after they mate in the air or where do they go? Yes, they die. So like they mate and they just fall from the sky dead? Or well, that's not. So that's actually... but. The, okay, we know that, an, that male ants don't play an active part in a colony after they've mated. Um, so where exactly they go and what exactly they do, I don't know. Most of them will probably be eaten, but they don't, like once they've made it, they've fulfilled their task. If the queens eat them as like a mid-flight snack, as they made, no, 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 or no, no, they no. just no. fall to no, the ground not. or like, or they fly yeah, down no. to the ground and just die or whatever. No, no, no. They don't. So ants, there's no evidence that ants eat their, like that queen ants eat their males. That's like, there's other species that do that. For ants, that doesn't, that's not something I've ever observed or heard about or things. So that's, I don't think that's a thing, but they will become food for other animals. They will not just, you know, fall out of the sky and be dead. So it's not that the process of mating kills them or anything. It's more that, again, they fulfilled their purpose. There's not anything else that they need to do. So in bees, you know, the, the males will mate with the queen and then she can store the sperm for like years. But in ants, what happens? So after the initial mating in the air, is it the same thing or what? Yeah, yeah, they store the sperm for a lifetime. So again, the difference is there. Yeah, I guess with bees, it's the same. But the diff- for instance, with termites, the termite king stays with the queen lifelong and they keep mating. 
but with ants, she stores the sperm and uses it to fertilize. And with ants, again, there's genetically, there's like something when two ants are actually super sisters, because in ants, an unfertilized eggs will develop into a male and the fertilized egg will develop into a female. Workers are technically female, but they don't have their reproductive organs like build out like a queen will have. And that depends on how the eggs are stored, how they're fed and so on. And when it's time to actually make virgin queens, again, they're treated differently, but technically they're the same initial genetic material than the workers. But males are different. Males unfertilized eggs. So between the, the workers and the virgin queens, the differentiation happens after the queen has laid the egg. What point is that, you know, one path or the other taken? I mean, the queen decides essentially through pheromones, like what it will be. And then the workers do what they need to do. They feed it differently. They treat them differently. There's a lot of variation between species of how it's done. There's, for instance, one species where in order to get an egg to become a queen and not a worker, they're biting it. So essentially by depending on how the egg is taken care of, yes. they're changing its gene expression to the point where it can become a virgin queen instead of a worker. Yes. That's amazing, yeah. Like, I've, I've heard of, like, rats that lick their babies a lot. The babies are a lot more, you know, relaxed and acclimated, and the ones that don't, they're more nervous. And the study was saying that I read that, um, you know, the rat mother licking her pups changes their gene expression. So I guess, you know, they're not licking the eggs, but whatever they're doing is changing the gene expression of the eggs pretty significantly to make the a virgin queen instead of a worker. Yeah. Very interesting. What in particular are you studying regarding speciation? Like what, what are some of your hypotheses that you're trying to experiment to prove? So again, the hypothesis there is basically is something same species or is it a different species? So I was talking about those ants in Florida. So there we have an ant What's currently one ant species that looks the same, seems to be the same, is in terms of nomenclature currently the same. But I, when I went down there and like I studied them, I looked at them, I noticed differences. And then again, I looked at their genetics and I found a pretty severe genetic difference between them. That's an indication for a species level difference. In this case, we also looked at the cuticular hydrocarbon profiles, or basically ants are covered in this like lipid layer that holds those smells and like everything that makes the ant what it is or like tells it what it is. And we can create a visual profile, you know, of like which which compounds are higher and which ones are what level each compound is. And for this, we can tell in which area the compounds are that they use to recognize a male and a female. So for these ants, we found that exactly in that area where we look for those differences, there's differences. So they wouldn't recognize each other within the same, between the two species, because those spikes of which compounds there are different. So it's essentially the same as a behavioral experiment. You know, when you said earlier, um, what if you put them together and they can mate? So since we know that ants need to recognize their smell to tell, okay, you're my species and I want to mate with you. In this case, we were able to visualize this and tell that that won't fit together. They won't be able to recognize each other anymore, which is an indication of different species. It'll be interesting. I'm betting that, you know, I was going to ask you like how well studied are these 20,000 species. So I'm betting there's a few of them that are like extremely well studied, a whole bunch that there's a little bit and a lot that there's barely anything. 
But, yeah. you know, imagine you could sit with this chart of all 20,000 species and all the stuff that's different about them, you know, like a chart of different abilities that you could look at and compare all these 20,000 species, what's different about all of them. I think that'd be really interesting if you could sit in front of something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of work. I mean, basically, that's what we're working on, right? When we're studying something on that chart. If you had a chart like that, what would you want to see on it? Would you want to like, would you want to sequence every single ant species? Would you want to look at, um, again, like their morphology or their mating habits? Or like, what would the dream chart look like for you? If it's my dream chart, I would like to know everything. And especially the things that are hardest, you know, like to figure out. Like ant behavior is extremely hard to study because, you know, there's the problem of you want to keep them in their natural environment, but how can you observe them? How can you know how far uh, they forage? How can you know what they do, you know, in colony and stuff? So then the only option you have is to take them out of their colony, to put them into the lab and try to reproduce the conditions that they find in the wild as best as you can. But it's not the same of course, and that's always the limitation. And we use statistics and so on and so forth to account for that. But still, but basically, if you want something that would really get at those details, it just takes a lot of time and a lot of money. One, ta- one means the other, more or less. But I would be interested in finding out those things that no one's even looked at because it's just so hard. Well, do ants have any like commercial benefit well, it, yeah. it's a good question because if they oh, did, it's an excellent question. And, and you could, you know, I mean, as a food source, you could raise them or, yeah. I mean, you know, bees pollinate. What do ants do for, for oh, the they world? They also pollinate. Really? Yeah. It's a wrong misconception that bees are the only insects that pollinate. So there's lots of other insects that pollinate and they're very important pollinators and ants are one of them. Ants also aerate the soil, they disperse seeds, they're scavengers, they're important scavengers. Here in Europe, you have those wood ants that make those giant ant hills, and they're actually called or they're known to everybody as the police of the forest, because they're so good at like getting rid of dead things that are in the forest. And so, so there's lots of there's lots of things that they do that are important. You know, when people ask me, I always say, if ants disappeared from the face of the earth from one day to the next, um, we would notice, even though you might not notice right now what ants are doing, but you would notice that things, something's off, something's wrong, things are not getting done anymore, everything's not working. Like it Yeah, what do you notice about, about like maybe a deforested area? What happens to it when there's no ants there or do they stay there? Are they the last to go? Well, it kind of depends on what habitat they need. You mean a deforested area? Yeah, an area where the environment has been disrupted and the animals are gone and you know people well, have taken it over. Do the ants leave last or if they leave, what happens? Like what's noticed? Do they leave last? I mean, I can't answer that. I don't know, you know, exactly what the progression would be. But once again, I mean, there are like all these food chains. And so it depends what they need for their ecosystem are they scavengers do they need um, forested areas to have the right climate and so on and so forth so once that's not there anymore obviously they will leave oftentimes in very disturbed areas it's invasive ants or invasive species in general that will do better because maybe it's more similar to their native habitat and so that's kind of what you will definitely find is lower diversity so if i have a garden or if I have a big plot of land where I'm growing stuff, should I, I mean, do people bring in ants deliberately to help, mm-hmm. you know, aerate the soil and mm-hmm. take care of the crops and everything? Like, uh, you know, do they, 
ever truck them in like bees and release no. them to pollinate a certain area? I'm not aware that they do that, but I think that would be something that would be useful. You know, what effects you would see, you know, I don't know. I mean, ants are pretty numerous in on the earth. So there's just a lot of ants and where ants are, you know, they live in colonies. So there's like lots of them. But yeah, no, I'm not aware that people currently do that. What kind of plants do uh, ants pollinate? It depends on the areas. I mean, lots of different things. I can't like tell you a specific plant right now, but there's specific ant species, for instance. We know ants, they're in the genus of phenogaster. That's kind of what they do. They use plants that actually produce a little um, fleshy um, part on the seed for which the ants like and the ants will eat. And so they pick the seeds up, carry them into their nest or like carry them somewhere. And that's what the plant uses. So it actually, there's a symbiosis that happened there or a mutual, a mutualistic relationship. Can you tag ants? Can you put like a, <laughs> a tiny fluorescent little spot of dye on them yeah. or something? And then yeah, track where they're going that. in there? Okay. Yeah, you can do that. You can even put an RFID tag on them and, and read them that way. What what really? you can't do, and I'm sad that you can't do that, is you can't put like a radio transmitter on them. So like a self-emitting signal, because that was something that I was really interested at some point. I was really curious about like how far ants forage. And so well, that's could you question. do like, could you do a NFC or a Bluetooth type thing? Could they well, have yeah, like but a, it's still... a Bluetooth receiver? For a Bluetooth receiver, would you need like a battery or something? Would you need like power? I don't know, but you know, you may want to look at at phones and you know the different kinds of communication. There's NFC, there's Bluetooth, there's I mean, there's all kinds of stuff infrared. So from that, maybe you'd be able to adopt one of those technologies to be to be able to study where ants are going passively, where they don't need an active uh, you know battery in order to send info back. Yeah, you'd have to like look into that. I mean, when when I was looking into those things, I think there was nothing that was possible to do. But at this point, you know, like maybe at this point there is something. It's interesting that you mentioned Bluetooth because maybe there's a way. I mean, the problem is, of course, ants are small. They're really small. So you can't do anything that's like too heavy or like needs something. But yeah. It'd be cool if you partnered with like Verizon or something and if they... They donated a whole bunch of money where you could retrofit some ants with some kind of passive transmitter and they would be part of it. That'd be really cool if you could do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd have to like, again, I'd have to look into, you know, whether that worked, but I don't remember that Bluetooth was an option for whatever reason. But I mean, if a company like that could sponsor research into that, that would be super cool. So what can you track about ants with RFID or these other methods? Like, What, what are we scientists able to do? Well, you can basically, you could track, you know, if they're, how often they're leaving and entering an area. So for instance, how often do they leave specific nest chamber? How how often do they leave to forage and like come back? So anything where you know that they need to pass through a specific point, that's what you can track. What you can okay, also well, what's do, been observed doing there? I'm not entirely sure. It's not my area of research, um, but I'm imagining a lot of different things for a lot of different ant species. So it depends. Okay, well, no problem. What is the future of your research over the next year or two? What, you know, you just, it sounds like you're away from the lab and away from the university. What are you working on right now over the next year or so? And where's your research going? Yeah, so the part that I'm actually interested now and that I've become more interested over the last few years during my work, so I, I briefly mentioned citizen science and working with schools 
and kind of, you know, the taking the mystery out of science and that stuff. And so science communication is kind of where this all falls under for me is something that I've been getting into. Uh, and the work that I've been doing with schools and getting, you know, kids involved in collecting data for general research. There's a project that I have with that. It's called Ant Picnic, where you lay out like little bait carts with different types of food. And then you wait an hour and then you you need to uh, count how many ants went to the different bait types. So it's a pretty simple experiment. And it's something that is feasible to do in a school and also like in a class period. And I've been in this work with schools. I've also noticed that there's a lot of additional information that is needed. So I've been looking into how can I communicate complicated facts about ants in like very visual ways and others. So I've developed like a, an, an identification key where you can identify the most common ant species in an area by just, you know, pictures and arrows and, and, and so on and so forth. How to identify the most common ants. So fire ants are always a thing in the US. So I have like a card that like shows you the six, the six characteristics that you can look at to make sure that what's, it, what's in front of you is a fire ant or if it's something else. And so I'm looking into developing that stuff more. Uh, I also want to do this across countries now as I'm here to see if I can do something that I was doing in the U.S. with schools over here as well. Yeah, so I think, so that's the direction into which I'm going. Well, that's very cool. And last question, uh, how do the kids react to the ants? Are they afraid of them? Do they love them? Like what, what do you notice? <laughs> yeah, so very, very different reactions. Mostly they're very worried about fire ants, but um, I also noticed that it's kind of important to establish a connection to an ant because most people don't really know how to relate to an ant. I think it's much easier to relate to uh, a dog or a cat or, you know, some mammal, but insects are a little bit harder. And for that, I created this little activity that's called Find Your Spirit Ant. And so I've used uh, 15 different ant species that are pretty common and I've kind of described them and like big pictures of them and described like what they do in more like human terms, you know, so these ants like to, you know, they live in big colonies and they have to commute for work, you know, and so on and so forth, just to kind of like get some sense of like who are these species and these are super hairy and these are not and these are, I don't know, they have long legs and these don't. And so you can just look through those different species and then figure out which one is the most like you. So the kids really enjoyed that activity. And I also noticed that, you know, once they have their spirit in and then afterwards they do the experiment and everything, they just, you know, relate to those ants completely differently because then when they recognize, oh, this is like the ant that's just like me. And then they're extra interested in it and just, you know, watch it more. And so I guess... Long story short, I think the reactions are really positive. I think really ants cool. are, yeah, ants are one of those animals where everybody just kind of, you know, has some story with them. And so people, which is your them. your spirit ant, and why? Well, my spirit ant is the trap jaw ant. It's a very specific trap jaw ant, though. I don't know. I I always like I try to do a lot of things, you know, at, at once, and you know, it kind of pulls me into different directions where I don't really know and. I've discovered this trap ant species that in addition to jumping forward, like backwards with its jaws, like I was telling you about, it also uses its legs to jump forward. 
So this is super crazy because jumping in ants, you know, is not something that's common. I don't know, you probably have never heard of jumping ants. Yeah, and yeah. So, so that's what I picked as my spirit ant because it's this like weirdo ant that like tries to do everything and then fails sometimes and, you know, but is still kind of doing it. Okay. Where, where can people find out more about your work? Yeah. So, um, so my website is theantlife.com. So this is where you just can find out everything about me and, and what I do and, and all the materials, of course, but then I created a separate website that's called discoverants.com, where there's specifically educational stuff, uh, what I've been talking about, different materials. We even created a teacher guide for teachers who want to um, use this citizen science project in the classroom and additional materials. And then, of course, I'm also on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Max Order. Very good. Well, Magdalena, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.